Hello, well, good morning, everyone. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Joe. Um, and this morning, um, we are now back in the book of Judges. We were looking at this um, just before we did the Creation Care series, and we're now back uh, for the second half of the book of Judges. And we'll be continuing from here through the second half of this book over the coming weeks. Um, I'll be up front from the outset. Uh, the second half of the book of Judges gets very dark and bleak in places. Um, and if you're joining us online this morning, uh, please do bear that in mind if you have children with you. Um, if you have a Bible, please turn to Judges chapter 10. Um, today we're looking at a passage which is really quite gritty. Um, but in the words of the great theologian Michael Rosen, we can't go over it, we can't go under it. <laughs> oh no, we've got to go through it. Um, so this is Judges chapter 10 from verse 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. Okay, so here we go again. The cycle that's been repeating throughout the front half of the book of Judges uh, comes around again. And we've seen this pattern over and over, haven't we? Where Israel turns away from God, falls into sin and idolatry. Their idolatry leads them to slavery under the oppression of the surrounding nations. They cry out for help. God raises up a judge to deliver them. There's a period of peace, and then they turn away from God again, and round and round it goes. And this time we read in verse 6, again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And you can almost hear the exasperation in the writer's voice. Again, the Israelites did evil. And this time we have a list of some of the other gods uh, they were serving, the Baals, the Asteresh, the gods of Aram. Um, and so forth. And these gods have been gathered by the writer into seven groupings. And so we have Baals, Ashtoreths, Aram, Sidon, Moab, Ammon, Philistia, seven groupings of gods. And in verses 11 to 12, God speaking lists seven nations that have historically oppressed the Israelites uh, the Egyptians, Amorites, Ammonites, Philistines, Sidonians, Amalekites, and Maonites. Seven is an important number in the Bible, it indicates fullness um, or completeness. You get the seven days of the creation week, the seven churches in Revelation. And we see this in nature as well with the colors of the rainbow and a decent portion of fish fingers. <laughs> the number seven, <laughs> that might be controversial, that one. The number seven is used very intentionally in the Bible. Uh, Dr. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, who knows about these things, um, says that seven is the complete whole and counting up to seven is a journey to reach the complete whole. So we see here the writer of the book of Judges counting up to seven groupings of gods, 
got Isles, the Asterisks, and so on. And then seven oppressive nations, the Egyptians, the Amorites, etc. This is a device to indicate a wide and total and complete apostasy, or turning away from God. Not only is Israel worshipping the gods of the Canaanite people during their ongoing struggles to dispossess those same people from the land, but we see from these lists that it seems the gods of any people with whom they come into contact also get absorbed into their religious life. So in verse 10, the Israelites cry out to God, we have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. But God says he will no longer save them. They should cry to the gods they have been serving for help. Don't you love a bit of divine sarcasm? Because God knows that their cry for help is not heartfelt repentance and returning to him. Israel wants the help in a time of need, but not the God who is helping them. They're treating God like one of their idols, trying to manipulate him to help, rather than be in relationship with their creator. Even their apparent attempt to turn from idolatry is therefore in itself idolatry. What a mess. But being confronted with God's answer, they do then appear to have a change of heart and understand what God is teaching them here. We read from verse 15, But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. So Israel is repentant, and they throw themselves onto the mercy of God, who graciously purposes to save them from their misery once again. Verse 17, when the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. Okay, so the scene is set and Israel once again needs a deliverer, uh, this time over in the east. Um, so can we have the map, please, Scott? Perfect, thank you. High production value. Um, so the events that follow are taking place um, in the east, on the right-hand side of this map, towards where it says Ammon. Um, and for a few weeks from next week, we'll be hearing about the life of Samson, um, who is operating over in the west, uh, towards Philistia, around what is now known as the Gaza Strip. Um, and later, we have mention of three other judges who are operating more locally within Israel. So we have Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon, and they're indicated by the three other little red splodges. And scholars believe that these events, um, the events of these various judges, were happening largely around the same time, um, with the main ones being Samson and the Philistines in the west, and Jephthah, um, as we'll hear this morning, in the east with the Ammonites. Right, okay, so we've made it to chapter 11. Here we go. So here we're first introduced to Jephthah, who is our main judge or leader for today. Um, and we begin um, with the man and the mandate. The man and the mandate. So let's begin with the man Jephthah, chapter 11. Uh, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. So this is Jephthah the man. Um, he's described as a mighty warrior, um, like Gideon. We heard about a few weeks ago. Um, but there is a problem. Jephthah is the son of a prostitute. So his father has other children by his wife, 
which means Jephthah is considered illegitimate as an heir. And as a result, he is despised by his brothers, his father's other children, um, who don't want to dilute their inheritance. And he's driven out, most likely as a young person. And as a young, functionally fatherless man driven from his home, he falls in with a rough crowd, um, whom the NIV here describes as scoundrels, um, and other translations have as outlaws um, and even worthless men. So Jephthah is a criminal from a broken home. But we'll see that his background has actually fitted him for his upcoming role um, as a shrewd negotiator and as a capable fighter. So that's the man. Um, and now let's see the mandate. So verse 4, sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, the Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. Okay, so we can see here that Jephthah is commissioned by the leaders um, to be the leader by the elders of Gilead. Um, and this is interesting because previous judges we heard about in the first part of the book, um, in the first part of this series, um, were described as having been raised up by God. Um, but here, it's the people who are making their own choice. They're looking for someone to lead them and deliver them from their troubles, and they themselves choose Jephthah, rather than him having been raised up by God for this purpose. This again is a sign of the increasing apostasy as the cycle that we've seen going through this book of Judges becomes a downward spiral through the rest of this book. And so Jephthah takes the opportunity from their need to secure his future. And he goes with them south from Tob to Mizpah, uh, which borders the Ammonite territory um, over in the east that we saw earlier. So we've been introduced to Jephthah, the man and the mandate. Now it's time um, for diplomacy and dialogue. Diplomacy and dialogue. Verse 12 of chapter 11 says, Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, What do you have against me that you've attacked my country? And now I'm just going to summarize this next section so we can keep up with the story. Um, there's a dialogue here between Jephthah and the king of the Ammonites. So in a nutshell, the Ammonites complain that Israel has seized some disputed territory from them unlawfully. Jephthah argues back that it was God who dispossessed the Ammonites from said territory, and that Israel just received it by virtue of God's blessing to them. He suggests that the Ammonites had it coming for hindering Israel on their travels through the wilderness back in the time of Moses, and you can read about that back in the book of Numbers, chapter 20. And anyway, it was the Amorites, not the Ammonites, different people, who had taken the land first, and it was from them that Israel took possession of the land. And apart from anything else, all of this happened 300 years ago. So why are the Ammonites making this claim on the land now? It's a little late for that. And it's not Jephthah's responsibility, he argues. Why break 300 years of peaceful relations? Jephthah says, our God has given us our land. And your God, Ammonites, who in this case is Chemosh, and remember Chemosh, we're coming back to him later, your God, Chemosh, has given you your land. 
So again, we have a faulty worldview on display from Jephthah this time. He appears to see God as just one God of many, the God who gave Israel their land, and the gods of other nations and people groups gave them theirs, rather than seeing the Lord as the one true God who rules all nations and is sovereign over all. The passage ends by saying that the king of Ammon paid no attention to Jephthah's message. Okay, so that was a speedy run-through, but let's move on. This next section um, is a vow and a victory and a victim. A vow and a victory and a victim. I'm keen on alliteration. Okay, I think this is probably one of the most disturbing and challenging passages in the whole Bible. Um, I've certainly found that to be the case. Uh, So verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, Let's pause just there. I wish I had more time to go into this this morning, but I just don't. We've just read that the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, and we're about to read uh, of a lack of wisdom, poor choices, and tragic results, um, which isn't going to sit comfortably with what we, as New Testament believers, understand by what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Very briefly, I would argue it's better to think of the Spirit of the Lord being upon someone in the Old Testament as an empowering of that person by God with an outward focus for a specific purpose rather than an inward spiritual transformation. The spirit of the Lord being upon Jephthah here is not the same as a New Testament believer being indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. That is debated, and I've just given you the view I side with. Um, But you might like um, to pick that up in Life Group this week. Uh, Sorry, Life Group leaders. Okay, so... Uh, So then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, And the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aroa to the vicinity of Minith, as far as Abel Keramim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept, because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Jephthah Sorry, the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. Okay, so I've always struggled with this passage. And I've struggled with it because the way it appears, a spirit-filled man makes a vow in humble piety, relying on the providence of God, and then has no choice to make his tragic sacrifice. What an unfortunate set of circumstances. So let's get into this then. So firstly, could Jephthah have just taken back his vow? 
Well, certainly vows were solemn and serious and to be carried out. They were not to be made lightly, and the Old Testament law is very clear on that. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21 says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. So that's one side. On the other hand, human sacrifice and child sacrifice in particular is expressly forbidden in no uncertain terms. Child sacrifice, sadly, was common as part of the religious life of the ancient Near East. But the Old Testament law is clear and markedly different. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 12 this time, verse 31, says it um, this way, speaking of the way that other nations worship their gods. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. Detestable things the Lord hates, and that's just one of multiple examples. Now, I feel, I feel the need at this point to contextualize this for us. Um, and to do that, I'm, I'm going to link this to abortion, um, which is not a popular topic. And it's obviously very emotive and very complex. But in Jephthah's day, in an ancient Near Eastern culture, he has the right to do this to his daughter as her father and as a leader of the people. His rights supersede hers. And we balk at that, rightly. But so too in our context. A woman's right to choose to terminate a pregnancy supersedes any potential rights of her unborn child. And I'm aware in a room of this size, together with anyone joining us online this morning, there will in all likelihood be people here and people listening who have an abortion in their past, either as a woman or as her partner. And I firstly want to say I'm not here this morning to lay it on thick for you for something in your past, the magnitude of which you are likely already well aware. In the New Testament, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If you are a Christian and you have previously had an abortion, I trust you know this. There is grace and mercy at the cross of Christ. And I am not here to condemn you. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus purifies us or cleanses us from all sin, your sin and mine. If this is something you've not worked through and dealt with previously, can I commend to you the work of Reflect, um, which is a free service offering pregnancy choice and pregnancy loss support. We have some uh, details of Reflect at the info point this morning, um, as well as in a few other less conspicuous places, if, if that would help you. But I wanted to make this link this morning for two main reasons. Firstly, because abortion is prolific and pervasive and it needs to be confronted. But secondly, for the sake of everyone else here, who perhaps doesn't have an abortion in their past, because I'm aware it's very easy for us to read the story of Jephthah and his foolish vow and sacrifice and think, how primitive and uncivilized. This surely doesn't relate to me. We've progressed beyond this. Well, you should know that since the Abortion Act of 1967, there have been over 9 million abortions taking place legally in Great Britain alone. Globally, 
there are 73.3 million abortions taking place every year, according to the WHO, the World Health Organization. That's an average of over 200,000 a day. And this equates to 55%, so over half of all human death. More than cancer, heart disease, communicable diseases, smoking and alcohol-related illnesses, and COVID-19 put together. So when we come to a passage like this, can we just not sit aloof judging Jephthah's actions, pretending we have progressed beyond this in our own culture? Can we just own it and understand that whilst we've changed some of the terms from Jephthah's day, this remains pandemic in our culture, our society, and across our world? Romans chapter 2, verse 1 says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. So as Jephthah's associates here, let's consider his options. And we're going to do this not according to the sway of culture or convenience or current sociology, but according to the word of God. The dilemma, if you remember, is that Jephthah has made a vow which shouldn't be broken, but which would result in human sacrifice which is forbidden. Can he break his vow and preserve the life of his daughter? Yes. Just, just yes. The underutilized, in my view, book of Leviticus, chapter 5, verses 4 to 6, says, If anyone thoughtlessly takes an oath to do anything, whether good or evil, in any matter one might carelessly swear about, even though they are unaware of it, but then they learn of it and realize their guilt, they must confess in what way they have sinned, and the priest shall make atonement for them for their sin. In other words, there was provision in the law to recognize the sin of the foolish vow and bring a sin offering for atonement. Because we worship a God of grace. Jephthah's problem isn't that he has to stick to his vow, it's that he shouldn't have made such a foolish, rash vow in the first place. And when realizing his guilt in making the vow, he should have thrown himself on the mercy of God and asked for forgiveness which would have been granted. But actually, we've been approaching this all wrong. Just when you thought it couldn't get any darker, let's look once more um, at Jephthah's vow. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now, there's a problem with the original language here, and some ambiguity as to whether it should be whatever comes out of the door of my house, or whomever comes out and whether it should be, I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering, or I will sacrifice him or them. I don't have time to delve into it fully, um, but in short, the context and language used suggests that Jephthah had vowed a human sacrifice to God. Presumably, he was expecting it to be a servant um, or someone else, but nevertheless, that appears to be what he's promising. So what on earth is going on here? This is not a vow made to the God of the Bible according to the Mosaic law. This is a pagan petition to curry favor with an ungracious, untrustworthy deity. God, the true God, has no interest in foolish vows and unlawful sacrifice. But Chemosh did. Remember him? When Jephthah told the Ammonites that their land had been given to them by Chemosh? 
In the book of 2 Kings, chapter 3, this is later in history, Israel is fighting against Moab. It's not going so well for the Moabites um, until verse 26 when we read this. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. And there's a parallel to this account um, on the Meshastili, also known as the Moabite stone. We've got a picture of that, I think, Scott. Um, from the perspective of the Moabite king mentioned. We got that, yeah. So a fascinating ancient artifact. The text is basically King Mesha, who's mentioned in that uh, Bible passage, boasting about all his exploits. Um, for example, he says. Uh, the men of Gad lived in the land of Ataroth from ancient times, and the king of Israel built Ataroth for himself, and I fought against the city, and I captured, and I killed all the people from the city as a sacrifice for Chemosh and for Moab. Throughout the text of the Meshastili, the king continually mentions sacrifices to Chemosh and building places of worship for Chemosh. Chemosh was the Moabite god, and child sacrifice, as indicated from this text in 2 Kings, was a way of worship. Jephthah has treated God like Chemosh. I'm not sure I can put into words the level of blasphemy and profanity and utter contempt he has shown God here, invoking the one true God as if he were just another false God, requiring favors and manipulation to act, failing to see that worship of the one true God, a God of faithfulness and grace, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ flows from a place of gratitude for the works he has already performed and the words he has assuredly promised. Jephthah is treating God as just another God of the nations, failing to see the magnificent holiness, transcendence, sufficiency, and exclusivity of God, the true God. He is trustworthy because he is the truth. Lastly, we need to look at a battle of brothers um, and we're just going to go through this quite quickly. A battle of brothers. We're now in Judges chapter 12. The Ephraimite forces were called out. They crossed over to Zaphon. They said to Jephthah, why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn down your house over your head, as you do. Jephthah answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites. And although I called, you didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw that you wouldn't help, I took my life in my hands and crossed over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave me the victory over them. Now why have you come up today to fight me? Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. The Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, you Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim. And whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked him, are you an Ephraimite? If we replied, no. They said, all right, say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth, because he could not pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. And 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Okay, so tribal jealousy here leads to threat um, and an intertribal war. The word Shibboleth here can mean either a flowing stream um, or an ear of grain. It doesn't matter too much. It was just a word that was difficult for outsiders to pronounce correctly. When Nancy and I first moved up to York from the south coast, we didn't know that feeling a bit waffy because you'd not had your dinner meant feeling lightheaded because you'd not had lunch. Um, thankfully, we weren't slaughtered on the banks of the ewes for it. Um, we still use the word shibboleth in modern English to refer to things used by insiders to detect outsiders. And so we see the downward spiral of the second half of the book of Judges tightening as Israel is now turning upon itself. 
And Ephraim never recovered from this to play a significant or important role through the rest of Israel's history. Notice in his previous dealings with the Ammonites, Jephthah at least first attempted to broker peace. But here he just kicks off and the Gileadites go on a rampage against Ephraim. Just as Jephthah's brothers turned on him as a young man, now the people of Israel are turning on their brothers from other tribes. And we still see this, don't we? People from other nations, regions, political leanings, ethnicities, cultural backgrounds, football teams, name it. We see division and strife between different demographics and people groups all the time. But this is not the way for the church. Ephesians 2 verse 14 says this, and here Paul's speaking about the division between Jews and Gentiles. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, thus making peace. As I say, here Paul is speaking about the division between Jews and Gentiles, but this is applicable to all division in the body. If God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, then reconciliation is possible between all believers. This is the only true and lasting answer for peace between hostile people groups of all kinds. However different the two groups were, in the church they have been made one in Christ and in Christ alone. And so finally, in Judges 12, verse 7, we read, Jephthah led Israel six years, then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a town in Gilead. And notice that in contrast to the pattern of previous judges, there is no mention this time of him bringing peace. Um, So let's pray. Father, we praise you as our creator and our redeemer. There is no other God besides you. Forgive us for the division in your body and our short-sightedness about the things in our own lives for which we pass judgment on others. We thank you that in Christ the dividing wall was broken down and we have peace. Peace with you, Lord God, and peace with one another. We ask that you would bring unity and strength to the church and that we would stand as a pillar and support of the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.